it's a special uh, opportunity today for us to listen to a man who's been involved for many years in uh, various uh, ecclesial settings as well as um, civic settings. And uh, his story is told partly in a book that came out in 2014, which is available for us today. And I'm going to buy a copy for the library. Uh, but um, uh, you'll hear more about it as he talks about his personal uh, experiences and personal life. Uh, I've known about the Elwanger name for many years because some of us who have backgrounds within the Lutheran Church remember that his father came as a headmaster <clears throat> to a historic black school in um, Selma, Alabama. As headmaster and as leader of all of the Lutheran congregations in that part of the South, in Alabama. Uh, he was that for a good number of years, and so uh, Joe Elwanger and his brother John, uh, who I knew uh, personally in Austin for many years, uh, grew up uh, in that setting and acquired many of their passions for civil rights uh, understandings there. Um, then, uh, after he went to the uh, seminary and became a pastor, he became a pastor for uh, somewhat under 10 years in Birmingham, Alabama, and then here in Milwaukee at Cross Lutheran Church for 39 years. 35. 35 years. I stretched it. And so in retirement, he is uh, serving as a pastor at Hafatha, uh, which is a Lutheran church in, um, in Milwaukee. Uh, his story will be fascinating to us because he marched with Dr. Martin Luther King and uh, was invited to serve in the uh, service that remembered the <coughs> girls that had been killed in the bombing in, in Birmingham. So we welcome you, uh, Joe, um, and your history in urban ministry is of special interest to us because we're very urban people here. We think of our parish as being an urban parish. And because of your story in civil rights, and because of your pastoral concern uh, f for all of it and through all of it, so please join us and share with us your story. Well, thank you, David. And uh, it was a surprise when uh, David asked me to come and uh, be a part of your adult forum and uh, uh, I discovered that he and I were actually in Alabama uh, at the same time, not very far away from each other, but uh, just far enough away that we didn't really cross paths, but uh, he was interning at uh, a congregation, Lutheran congregation in Cullman, Alabama, which is about 50 miles north of Birmingham, and it was, was, and I hope it isn't now, but it was uh, one of those sundown uh, towns where you know blacks were told that at sundown you need to be gone. Uh, and I was in Birmingham, uh, so uh, we were just far enough apart geographically that didn't really get to know each other then. But what a pleasure to make a contact and then to be invited here. 
uh, I was just telling a couple of people that I remember doing a wedding here, uh, a couple that uh, had tangential connections with our cross church where I was pastor, and uh, the bride just loved this church so the church architecture so much that uh, she wanted to be married here. So uh, St. Paul was gracious enough to uh, make that possible. And uh, I enjoyed the, the wedding, to, to say the least. Well, uh, we have a lot of ground to cover here this morning, and uh, there's obviously no way that we can do justice to 60 years of urban ministry that I have been engaged in, uh, nine years in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, in an African-American congregation and community, and I did live next to the church in the community from 1958 to 1967, uh, and then at Cross Lutheran from 67 to 2001, when I technically retired, and uh, since 2002 have been connected with Hephatha, which is in the heart of 53206, 18th and Locust, and a, a really vibrant urban congregation. So, uh, you know, 60 years of uh, uh, urban congregational experience, uh, not only do I not regret it, but I am grateful to God that I had that opportunity. It has made me who I am. It has helped to shape my theology, helped to shape uh, my understanding of history, my understanding of this country, and where it's been and where it is and where it ought to be going. Um, I have often said that I was grateful that my first call uh, after the seminary was not to Bismarck, North Dakota. <laughs> and I have nothing against uh, North Dakotans or Bismarck or even the cold weather as much as I probably wouldn't enjoy that part of it. Uh, but to, to have been called to a traditional Lutheran church with 150 years history and uh, you know, maybe stained glass windows and a pipe organ uh, would have been an interesting experience. But to be called to a struggling congregation that had actually been technically closed by uh, one Lutheran body uh, and was down to about uh, 30 members uh, and in the heart of Birmingham, Alabama was at the time something that I really uh, appreciated and enjoyed. And as I look back 60 years, uh, I see that it was truly God's hand in directing me. And I might say, uh, I wish that every pastor uh, would have had uh, some, uh, a similar type of experience. Because my commitment to uh, doing justice uh, is clearly rooted in my experience of Jim Crow uh, in Birmingham from 58 to 67. Let me start uh, with a, a quick uh, push, push aside of a piece of the presentation this morning, and that's uh, a reference to my book. I, I don't want to uh, miss lifting that up because it, 
uh, all the things that I can't, don't have the time to talk about this morning, not all of the things, but a lot of them are in the book, and it's an opportunity to, uh, to get a handle on a whole lot more than I will have time to talk about this morning. Um, and I don't want to uh, make that the end of the, or the climax of the presentation. Uh, let me just say a couple words and get it out of the way. First of all, to say I, I never had any intention of writing a book, especially about uh, our learnings over uh, the years in urban ministry, for three reasons. First of all, uh, it's, it sounds a little bit like blowing your own horn, and that is not me. And number two, I figured that every urban congregation uh, struggles with what it means to uh, live the gospel in that context in which they find themselves. And so what would we have and what would I have to share uh, with the rest of the church and the rest of the country? And thirdly, I have always been on the go, always busy, always more to do than there is time to do it. And so I always figured I didn't have time to write a book. But until uh, in my retirement, I did some organizing, uh, went around the state of Wisconsin and uh, established congregation-based justice organizing groups uh, in... Uh, 10 different cities around the state. And in the process of being an organizer, we always have meetings. And uh, so at one of these meetings with the other organizers, I said something, and I don't even remember what it was, but uh, a 26-year-old African-American uh, man, organizer, said, Reverend Allwanger, you're going to have to write a book. And I said, you're pulling my leg. And he said, no. Uh, you have so much to share. In fact, uh, you have to put that on your to-do list. And, you know, organizers have the to-do list. Uh, and then he looked around the circle of organizers and he said, we will hold you accountable. Because you have to report on how you're doing on your to-do list at these organizers' meetings. And I realized I didn't have to do this. Um, but I thought for a few weeks, and I realized that if an African-American man, 26 years old, says that, uh, that I have some stories from my experience in, in the past that would be helpful, I better listen to him. And so I started writing the book, and it took me... Uh, because I was always busy, and it took me about eight years to do it. And here it is. Uh, and it has, uh, it's not a chronological story of how I started. I was ordained on July 13th in 1958 on a hot summer day. Uh, but, and then, you know, marching uh, down the chronological line. No, it's, it's rather... Uh, each chapter focuses on an aspect of ministry uh, where we learned in Birmingham and in, uh, at Cross and now at Hephatha, what we learned, and we, notice I use the pronoun we, what we learned as a congregation and as a people of God, trying to get a handle on what the gospel really, really means when you take it seriously. And uh, so... 
there's a, you know there's a chapter on uh, uh, walking with immigrants and refugees, and a chapter on walking with uh, gay and lesbian community, and a chapter on walking with uh, formerly incarcerated people. You get the picture. It's uh, a piece, a slice of what we discovered over the years. Uh, the gospel calls us to do. So, it's more than I should, probably should be saying about the book. Let me move into the presentation itself. Uh, and, and let me begin with a story. Uh, because stories is what people remember, and stories uh, are helpful for all of us. And this is a story uh, that has really been meaningful to me, uh, giving me both uh, courage and humility. And it's a good way to begin my presentation. It was 1961 in my parish in Birmingham now for three years. Jim Crow, African American congregation, and uh, we got an invitation from a white Lutheran congregation in Tuscaloosa, 60 miles away, inviting our youth to come and participate in a youth fellowship with their youth in this white congregation in Tuscaloosa on a Sunday evening. So I presented the invitation to our youth and asked whether there's anyone who was interested in going. Now, keep in mind, in 1961, in Alabama, this was an out-of-the-box invitation. Believe me, it was an out-of-the-box invitation. And it would have been an out-of-the-box acceptance of the invitation for any of our youth to say, yeah, that's important for me and for us to do. Well, there were two, two girls, 15-year-old girls, Betty Wells and Carolyn Freeman, who said they would be very interested in going. We went, we had a great evening, uh, just a lot of honest sharing and fellowship and singing and eating of spaghetti dinner and praying. And uh, on the way back, Carolyn and Betty in the back seat of the car were just waxing uh, excitedly about the evening. And uh, they started getting theological, like, uh, you know, this is what the church really ought to be about. Uh, crossing lines and building bridges. And, you know, keep in mind that this was a time when black youth and white youth never did anything equally. They did not go to McDonald's together. They did not go to basketball games together. They did not go to school together. They did not go to church together. Never. And here they had that kind of experience that night. Well, Wednesday of that week, I picked the paper up off of the front porch. And there on the front page was the picture and the story of the young intern who had invited us to this evening, uh, how he had been picked up at midnight by the Ku Klux Klan and taken out to the edge of the city, beaten, and left to walk back on the railroad tracks at 2 o'clock in the morning. And a cross burned on the lawn of the church, 
And a note on the door of the church that said, if another integrated youth meeting happens here, something worse will be coming next. Well, I hadn't finished reading the article in the paper when the phone rang. And I picked it up, and a gruff voice on the other end asked, Is this the Reverend? I said, Yes, it is. Well, you and the two girls are next. Click. Well, after reading the article in the paper, I realized this was not uh, just uh, another uh, threat, an idle threat. It was obviously, it could be serious. So I knew I had to talk to the two girls and their families. So I'm getting to the point of this story. I still remember the conversation with Carolyn Freeman. I uh, told her about the threat of the Ku Klux Klan. And after I shared that with her, I asked her, Carolyn, are you afraid? Now remember, this is a 15-year-old girl. And almost immediately she said, no, I'm not so much afraid as I am ashamed. I said, Carolyn, what do you mean you are ashamed? And she said, I'm ashamed that others have suffered so much and are suffering so much for the freedom of my people and all people, and I have done and suffered so little. A 15-year-old girl trumps the threat of the Ku Klux Klan with a faith statement that uh, puts adults in all generations, including myself, almost to shame. And so this, this is what I mean when I say that this story and this 15-year-old girl's witness, Carolyn's witness, to me, is something that gave me courage if a 15-year-old girl can be that courageous in the face of injustice and threats, then I better be courageous. And secondly, it humbled and still humbles me, and that's the way in which I want to begin this presentation, because there are so many who have gone before me and before us who have done so much and suffered so much for the freedom and the justice of all people. And I haven't done really that much. And I want to, to, to articulate that kind of a disclaimer that uh, even though I am going to be sharing uh, some learnings from 60 years of urban ministry, uh, I don't want you to think that this is the final answer and has all the answers. This is the learning along the way. And I present it humbly. But let me just begin with two very quick learnings before I get into uh, 
what folks identify me with especially, and that is my involvement in, in justice work. I want to make it especially clear, and I ask for a, a whiteboard or something to write on. I'm uh, not sure that I will write because that takes an extra minute and I, I want to use all my minutes. So let me just say that I learned over the years, starting with Birmingham and then 35 years at Cross Church and 15 years now at Hephatha, I have learned that urban congregations, small and struggling congregations, can all become strong and vital and vibrant congregations. They can. When they take the gospel seriously and are willing to live the gospel as well as verbalize the gospel. And it, I can say that from the experience. I came to uh, St. Paul, Birmingham, when it had 30, congregate, 30 uh, members and 15 or so in, in worship. And by the grace of God, uh, nine years later, 300 plus members in a vibrant congregation that became self-supporting. And I, I want folks to know that I take seriously the formation and strengthening of congregations. Uh, this, you know, it was not as though I was gung-ho civil rights and justice work and I didn't have time for the uh, ordinary work of a parish pastor. Quite the opposite. I was so engaged in confirmation classes and pastoral visits and uh, classes for uh, people wanting to learn more about the gospel that I found it very difficult to, to wedge in the justice work. Uh, and likewise at Cross Church, uh, when I came in 1967, uh, the, the community around Cross Church was 90, 95% African American by that time already, and the congregation was 95, 98% white. And you see what the challenge was, and I came uh, be precisely because the congregation in their call said that they wanted to reach out to the community. They heard that I had experience in doing this, and so they called me to help them reach their community. And I said, if you're serious about that, I will come. And they were serious about it, but what they had in mind, most of them, was keeping Cross Church alive and going, and assuming that nothing much would change with the liturgy or with the way the congregation was uh, organized. And, you know, if, if you're walking with people and receiving their gifts, things are going to change. And so, you know, uh, a youth choir formed and began singing uh, some gospel songs and some other songs, and we began incorporating that into the congregational worship, and, 
and, uh, and things began to change as we also began to stand for justice issues in the community. Hadn't done that before. And so within three or four years, uh, most of the white members had transferred out. They had already moved out, you know, 90% of them lived out of the community and they were coming back for the glory of Cross Church and where they grew up and where they were nurtured and it was all good and healthy motivations to a point. Um, but when I left 35 years later, the congregation was like 70, 75% African-American, 25% uh, white, and one old guard member. The learning here is that a congregation that is alive in the gospel is going to reach all kinds of people. They're 25% white membership, and it was you know, 600, 700 members. It wasn't down to 20. Uh, the white members who came to Cross Church came because of what they found and what they heard and what they saw. Uh, a lively youth program, a, a lively worship with variety and diversity in its music, and engagement with the community and justice issues. And so they came. And uh, that is a, an important learning for every urban congregation. The other learning that has to do with congregational life is that we found that uh, what the Catholic bishops in 1961 at Medellin, Colombia called God's preferential option for the poor. Have you ever heard that phrase? Uh, it's still used today. It was mainly Latin American bishops who gathered at a very <coughs> critical time in the, in the history of Latin America. Uh, and if you think about that, God's preferential option for the poor. And all you have to do is look at everything in Scripture from the freeing of the children of Israel who were slaves in Egypt. They weren't exactly the autocracy and the elite at the top. They were at the bottom. And then you get to the New Testament and Jesus' ordination uh, text from Isaiah is uh, the spirit of the Lord is poured out upon me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to release the captives. Those are all people at what I call the edges of society. People that society says they're not that important. They're sort of throwaways. They're almost in the way. And scripture and the Christian faith and the gospel specifically and Jesus and his ministry makes it especially clear. These are the folks that 
you know, we don't rule out the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the tax collectors, and the rich. But God's preferential option where we spend extra energy is with the poor, those at the edges. And if a congregation keeps that in mind, it will get engaged in ministries that will look absolutely foolish to the world. Because that's not the way the world considers its hierarchy of values and, and priorities. That's the last relating to the poor. But congregations that, that honestly and creatively attempt to walk with and reach out to and receive from formerly incarcerated persons, uh, refugees and immigrants, the gay and lesbian community. All of these are, <coughs> are groups of people that society says are not that important. And the church and the gospel says quite the opposite. And the learning is that as we at St. Paul in Birmingham and Cross in uh, Milwaukee took seriously ministries reaching out to and walking with such persons, we were blessed. And that became an important source of our vitality, without a doubt. Now, having made clear that I personally have learned and, and am committed to building communities of people that take the gospel seriously, let's get into a learning that was very important for me personally. Uh, and it started in Birmingham and has continued right up to the present. And that is uh, that doing justice, uh, working to change policies that are oppressive for people is not off of the radar screen of the, the church trying to live the gospel. It's right there at the, at the center. And we, we do justice, not in spite of our faith, but because of our faith. And that's what I learned, especially through Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the civil, what was, is called in the history books, civil rights movement. But the civil rights movement, if you look at who's leading it in the South and who was at the heart and the core of it, it was Christian preachers leading Christ, their flock as much as would catch the vision into a ministry that, uh, that brought the, uh, the issues of justice front and center. And so uh, I got my toes wet in Birmingham uh, 1963, if you are history buffs, you know that that was the year that the 
demonstrations were uh, uh, carried out in Birmingham in the spring of 63. It was in uh, September of 63 that the 16th Street Bob, uh, Baptist Church was bombed. Four beautiful girls lost their lives. The pushback by the Ku Klux Klan to the very limited victory that uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the movement in Birmingham had won. But <clears throat> that's where I, as I say, got my toes wet in recognizing that if I am going to preach the gospel to people, black or white, in Birmingham, Alabama, in Jim Crow days, and I do not speak about Jim Crow, and I do not do anything, try to do anything about this Leviathan that's out there, uh, then I am not really fully carrying out my responsibility as a uh, preacher and as a follower of the gospel. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, that was the beginning. 1965 was where I, uh, I jumped in <laughs> and I, I got my toes wet in Birmingham, but in 65 in Selma, if you recall, this was the, uh, the movement for the Voting Rights Act. And uh, I truly believe that 1965 is, was, and still is one of the most important years in our history as a nation. Because it was in 1965 that a very strong Voting Rights Act was passed. And within two years, African Americans not only were voting, but becoming sheriffs in Wilcox County. Oh. Uh, you have to know Alabama to know what I'm saying here. But anyway, sheriffs, mayors, DAs. And within two years, the de jure segregation was dismantled. Uh, and so if you go to Selma, Alabama today, you can go to any restaurant and you will see Blacks and whites, customers, blacks and whites, serving on staff. Uh, never, never before 65. So what's the learning from Selma 65? The learning is that, for one thing, demonstrations, nonviolent demonstrations, going public with a justice issue can be, can be extremely effective. The Voting Rights Act in 65 would never have been passed if it had not been for the movement in Selma. And yes, if it hadn't been for Bloody Sunday, March 7th, 1965, it was all part of the picture. Uh, but the power of Nonviolent demonstrations is never to be minimized, even to this day. Secondly, the power of the vote 
dare not be minimized. When we see what happened in the South within two years, after people had the vote, unbelievable. The power of the vote to this very day is so strong that, and here's the third learning from Selma, that for every progress that we make on the justice field, there will very quickly be a pushback. And so ever since 1965, there have been efforts to push back the ability of every adult in this country being able to vote. So what do we have today? We have, and we have to call it for what it is, voter suppression. All of the attempts of states, including Wisconsin, to get voter ID, uh, to purge the voter rolls and so on, those are all attempts not to help people to vote, the very opposite. They scare people from voting. That's the pushback to 1965, and it happens with every progress that we make in, on the justice field. And I think that we're <laughs> way past, uh, not way past, but a little past uh, the half hour and now it's more like 45 minutes and uh, I just, I'm just getting wound up here. Uh, but I, I would like to have opportunity for Q&A because what's on your mind uh, is important to me and uh, let's see what we come up with. So if it was the, the Christian church that led, led the movement originally in the 60s, with sort of the corruption of the evangelical church today, is that sort of what you're saying, like as the pushback that it's not gonna come from what was the community that did it for progress today? Well, the, 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 you bring up an important point. Uh, the pushback uh, to progress in, on the justice field is coming not only from uh, you know, the, the far right and the extreme nationalists, but from the church. You're right. People who think they've got the gospel uh, right, they even call themselves evangelicals, uh, and, and that's the Greek word for the gospel. Uh, and their agenda is unbelievably pushback uh, on justice issues if you go down the line. Uh, I could go say a whole lot more, but uh, let's see if we got another question. Yes. What did you think at the time, early, mid-60s, of the coverage of civil rights events in the South by major US media the television networks and the major newspapers, South and North? Well, good question. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, television was just coming into its own. That's hard for us to uh, remember and realize. But thank God, television was there. Because if it hadn't been there, 
I think Bloody Sunday, March 7th, 1965, would have been nothing more than maybe a paragraph on page 65 of the Sunday New York Times. As it was, the media were there on that Sunday, and they got a running story of the pushback from the 500 or 250, I guess is more accurate, uh, state troopers, uh, sheriff's deputies, Ku Klux Klan types who had uh, tear gas and all the rest, uh, cattle prods, <coughs> rifles, uh, and they mowed down the 500 men, women, and children on uh, this side of the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the Sunday night news gave that coverage. And this is what moved a thousand clergy within two days to come to Selma on Turnaround Tuesday to march back over the bridge to demonstrate that uh, the movement is not giving up. Uh, and it was the media coverage that reached the White House and the Congress. And this is what really changed uh, LBJ, President uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson's mind. Uh, he sort of had it uh, on his calendar for two or three years later that he might work on a Voting Rights Act, but this moved it up. So uh, the point is that television really helped the movement uh, in a powerful way, uh, the southern newspapers uh, did not report these events at all in most instances, or if they did, it was one paragraph on page 21 of, of the paper. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was a mixed bag, but uh, thank God that there was television. Uh, because it got all over the country and the world. This was back in the uh, uh, Cold War days. And uh, Russia had a picture of the 16th Street Baptist Church when it was bombed on front pages. And the debacle on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Uh, so it was something that got media coverage very poor in the South, mixed in parts of the Midwest, but uh, very strong uh, on the East Coast. Yes? Yes, with what's going on now in this country and the world, your experiences, and to paraphrase Faulkner to a degree, the past is never the past. That's, oh, absolutely. That's a, a good way of putting it, and exactly what I meant when I said that for every step of progress on the field of justice, I will guarantee you there will be a pushback the next day. It may take a while to materialize uh, to the point where we see it, and there are people who still don't see it. People who are in denial about voter suppression. They say that is a loaded term that isn't accurate. Oh, I mean, that is total denial about the reality of where it's coming from, what its intent is, and what its outcome is. So uh, you're right. Uh, <laughs> what was your phrase again? 
The past is never the past. Right? The past will the never be totally past. Right. And that's why we have to be vigilant and we have to be on the mark constantly to fight back. Right. Yes. Except on that, you know, there's another phrase, um, the arc of history looks towards justice. And let's talk a little about social justice. And fast forward to Milwaukee. And I would hate to leave here. I mean, this is a history lesson, so thank you for writing the book. I'll get it. <laughs> but, but, but talk a little bit about social justice as you think about Milwaukee. There, there are a lot of ripples, and, and I know you only have five minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, a, a very important question, and uh, absolutely. Uh, there are uh, so many injustices and roots to the injustices that have to be dealt with right now uh, that it sometimes boggles people's minds to the point that they say, well, there's, it is so complicated, so complex, and so deep that I don't know where to begin, so I just won't do much of anything. And that would be terrible if we could prove that, because there's always something that everybody can do, even if it's writing letters to the editor or to a, a politician. But what are the issues? Oh. Last night, I was at the Project Return Annual Banquet, where we celebrate uh, 39 years <coughs> of re-entry ministry. You know what uh, re-entry is? It's uh, men and women coming out of prison re-entering society. And if you want to imagine uh, one of the most difficult times in a person's life, it is when they come out of 15, 20 years of incarceration back into a society that insists that they wear a scarlet letter on their forehead and that insists that you, we want you to be successful and we want you to uh, get a job and support yourself, uh, but don't get a job here and don't live here and don't do this. I mean. Uh, the mass incarceration in our country is one of, just one of the current issues that every church and every individual to a degree ought to be engaged in because it is a blemish on our nation and on the church. Our nation has the highest, uh, you're, you're touching uh, my passion right now and I could uh, have a whole series of uh, uh, sessions on just how you get at dismantling mass incarceration because uh, in, in wisdom, our statewide organization, congregation-based organizing groups uh, network, we, we have hmm, uh, in every one of our affiliates uh, a committee or task force that works on mass incarceration. We have discovered that there are 10 basic roots that fuel mass incarceration. And we have to work on all 10. It's not a simple matter. Just, <laughs> just uh, this one issue of mass incarceration. One of the 10 roots is that every year in the state of Wisconsin, 3,000 people 
go back into incarceration, not because they committed a new crime, but because they broke a rule of their parole agreement. And it, you know, it could be anything from uh, you didn't show up or you were late for your appointment with the PO, the parole officer, to uh, you got a job. Now listen to this one. You got a job without the PO's uh, agreement uh, and blessing. What? <laughs> yes. 3,000 go back into our system every year in the state of Wisconsin just because they broke a rule. That's what is called crimeless revocation. Well, uh, uh, you, you get the idea. Uh, what's, what's at stake here in Milwaukee, in the most segregated city, with the deepest poverty uh, of any city in the country? Uh, a whole lot at stake. And that is why uh, Thursday night of this past week, we had a MICA public meeting where we dealt with uh, the inequities in public education. Uh, whew, don't get me on that one. Started on that one. And, and uh, jobs, uh, you know, you can have a 2.9 unemployment rate and uh, employers looking for workers, but there are unemployment pockets in the central city of 20, 30, and 40% unemployed because of the barriers to employment. And uh, there are ways to get at those barriers of formerly incarcerated, uh, underground economy, and uh, poor educational background. There are ways of getting at that, uh, but the jobs fairs that we have will not. Uh, and that's where we uh, are working on transitional jobs that have proven to be a bridge to permanent employment uh, for people who have these barriers to employment. And so, uh, uh, yes, there are uh, the injustices of our time, and my, my speaking of time, <laughs> Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, just, just a personal, but also a parish um, uh, observation. So uh, when Pastor Elwanger was uh, a pastor in Birmingham, I was the assistant to the bishop just 50 miles north of that. And I only caught glimpses of what was going on, but it was clear that the bishop's view was preach the gospel, but leave the rest to the people. And your position from his standpoint would have been you went too far because you preached the gospel, but then you took a stand for justice. And as I reflect on it today within this parish, I think in many ways we attempt to do that second part by virtue of our involvement with the gathering and with common ground and things like that. But um, um, that's very important. Uh, for us as a parish to be able to take that second step to, to live the gospel and to take a stand for justice. So I respect what you're saying and, and the clarity with which you brought it out because as a young man I hadn't yet grasped that uh, differentiation. But, yeah, that was exactly the point of difference between 
the white moderates in the South and uh, Martin Luther King and the, and the movement. Uh, they say, oh, we agree with your goals, but we don't agree with your methods. Yeah. Nonviolent demonstrations. Uh, I could go into uh, detail there, but right, uh, the church must go public. Congregations and uh, pastors and uh, members need to go public on justice issues. Uh, justice issues, and notice uh, that's not necessarily a political, uh, uh, a partisan position. It will involve politics, and this is where some pastors and congregations and church bodies get scared and say, well, no, that's not our business, that's politics, you know. Uh, but justice is our business, and uh, to the degree that justice engages and involves politics, we have to be engaged, we have to be involved, to be silent. I, you know, Martin Luther King often talked about three demonic forces at work in our culture. Uh, racism, militarism, and materialism. And uh, you can unpack all of those and, and recognize they're very much with us today yet. I would add that there are three uh, demonic forces also at work in our culture and especially our church culture. And I would say that they are cynicism, skepticism, and quietism. And it's the quietism of the church. Being quiet and ultimately for all practical purposes, being silent in the face of uh, 11 people being killed at uh, the uh, Jewish synagogue, uh, uh, the uh, man who was shot 14 times by the uh, trying to think of his name, uh, Dante Hamilton's uh, death uh, a couple of years ago at the hands of the police, uh, 14 times, a mentally ill person with no weapon, shot 14 times by the police and no conviction. Those are issues that need to be mentioned, prayed about, lifted up, in sermons and the liturgy of the church as well as action in the streets because the world looks at the church and to the degree that the church is quiet and skeptical and cynical and doesn't get engaged to that degree the world says the gospel is not for me and we are at an age right now where the nuns you know who the nuns are n-o-n-e-s those are the folks that when they're asked uh, on uh, you know, what's your denominational preference or religious preference? None. And uh, uh, we, we're the millennials and uh, Generation Z are predominantly nuns. Uh, they don't claim religious connection. And how are they going to be reached? They will not be reached with verbalizing the gospel and shaming them for leaving the church, they will be reached only as we publicly are engaged in issues that they see are important to the world and to them 
justice issues. And so it is extremely important that we keep up to speed on that. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it.